I don't know, I alternated among so many different like emotions for that year. It was mostly though, I think just defiance. It was like, I'm just going to get through this, you know, like, um, and that's part of the reason I still ran the Squamish 50. Hey, and welcome back to the next episode. I have an interview today that I am so excited to get out. I've wanted to speak with Tara Holland for a long time now, but I'll be totally honest. I was scared. I was intimidated. Why? Uh, because she's really smart and really fast and one Squamish 50, has a PhD, um, and does some amazing things. She works in environmental science. We talk a bit about climate change. We talk about her battle with breast cancer and how she came back to win Squamish 50 and how the community was just so 100% behind her because uh, she's also just really nice. So it's not super fair, but anyways, you're going to like her. I'll leave it short because we chat for a while and I have two sponsors to tell you guys about today. So super jazzed to be working with Athletic Brewing. So you guys have probably heard of them, but if you haven't, it's high quality, flavorful, award-winning craft. Athletics Brewing award-winning head brewer and founder John and co-founder Bill brewed hundreds of beers until they perfected the mosaic of brewing processes to make craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. Athletic stands shoulder to shoulder with any top alcoholic craft beer in quality and taste. It only has 50 to 70 calories per can. Their blues, brews, sorry, fit into any beer occasion. I am a big proponent of getting up super early and going for runs and wanting to feel great. And alcohol doesn't really mix with me that well. So the fact that I can have, um, just kind of be part of the fun, well, I mean, you can be a part of fun with anything, but it's really fun to have an athletic brewing craft beer. You can mix it in with a real beer. You can do whatever you want to do. Not together, but you know what I mean. Like flip-flop back and forth because they say that you should alternate with water if you don't want to feel bad the next day. This way you can just keep on going strong with the same effects of the water mixing. That's not scientific research. That's me thinking out loud, but I think that's a great idea. So if you go to athleticbrewing.com, and you get two six packs or more, you get free shipping. But no matter what you order, you get 15% off by using the discount code Trail Running Women 15. Um, so you have to spell it out for this one Trail Running Women 15 at checkout. I will link to that in the show notes. The other sponsor for today's podcast is Gooder Sunglasses. Guys, it's summer. It's Gooder. Uh, they sent me some to try out because, of course, I'm not gonna talk about something unless I am trying it. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I'm obsessed so much that I just went ahead and bought a whole bunch more with my own discount code, uh, which is TRW15 at checkout at gooder.com. Because I'm super obsessed with these sunglasses, I have found one for every single occasion because they're fun and bright and just an amazing look to finish off. If I am going for a jog in the rain, I like to have sunglasses on. So they have some lighter lenses that you can wear. Um, And even in the rain, they're not bouncing. They don't slip. And I'm totally obsessed. I've got pink ones, green ones, um, flamingos on a booze cruise, sweater vest for your face. The list goes on. And they're not expensive. Guys, they're $25 in the U.S. If you want to order from the U.S. side in Canada, get a couple of pairs so you get free shipping under duties. I think you can get, I think I ordered four pairs. So there's not going to be duties. I don't have to pay shipping and I still get a huge discount. Like that's amazing. So check them out. If you find me on Instagram at hillsport55, you can see me wearing all of the sorts of colors. And my favorite thing you guys do for the podcast is put it in your stories that you're listening. So please, please do that. And just find me on Instagram. Say hello. Again, that's hillsport55. Okay. I have to go raise a human out of his bed and feed him breakfast. So I'm going to go do that. Good day to y'all. All right, I'm here today with a guest I've wanted to have on for a long time, Tara Holland. And we have known each other through the interwebs and through mutual friends, finally met in person for the first time only a few weeks ago. And she is currently eating breakfast to make sure that she's totally fueled for you guys for today. So thank you for joining me in the morning on your holidays and welcome to the show, Tara. Thanks, Hillary. I wouldn't want to bonk in the middle of the interview for sure. <laughs> No, and, and like, we were saying before the show, like, everybody's a runner and everybody's always like, hold on, I'm hungry. So I think we're all used to it. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so let's start off as we do, like, just with a brief intro, I guess, before we get into your history, your career path is is super interesting. So why don't you tell us kind of what you do, where you live, um, and just like your elevator pitch on you as a human? 
Oh God, the elevator pit. Um, <laughs> as a human, yeah. <laughs> really really <laughs> narrow question to start. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, at seven thirty in the morning. Um, well, I so for a living, I I'm a prof at Simon Fraser University. So I teach environmental science and geography. I'm cross appointed between two departments, um, which is amazing. They're like my two passions basically in life. So I get to teach about like climate change um, and just kind of general environmental science issues. Um, so yeah, I, I feel really lucky. Like I have um, sort of an unusual, not unusual, compared to most um, positions in academia, I have a teaching focused position, which is kind of rare. Um, more often they're research focused positions. So this is something that I, I knew that I wanted for a really long time um, and worked really hard to get into this. Uh, so it's amazing. Like I've been in this kind of what I call my dream job for three, two and a half years now, I guess. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, is that an elevator pitch? It's not a very good one if it is. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's, it's so interesting. So many things just came up like, I don't know, this might sound really stupid to someone with your level of knowledge, but like all of these documentaries that come out and these new things, like I just was, watched Seaspiracy and you see all the things that are going on and learning about climate change. And I find it so overwhelming that it almost just kind of makes me sad and depressed. And I wonder like being totally in that space, is it really overwhelming or do you feel like you're actually able to teach things that we can do that will make a difference or does that make any sense? Yeah. Totally. It's a little bit of both, honestly. Like it's hard. So one of the things I focus, so, okay, let me back up. I've been teaching about climate change for like 13 years. <laughs> um, so, you know, it gets, actually when I started teaching it, it was not that there was any really uncertainty among scientists, but it, it, it just, it didn't seem like as much of a dire situation as it is now, you know? So I taught it with a lot less sense of urgency in those days, whereas now it's like, yeah, I have to really ride the fine line between just depressing my students, um, but like really delivering the science in no uncertain terms kind of thing, but then also leaving room for hope, um, which there is, there's, there's so much that we can still do. And it's not, um, uh, it's not like we've completely screwed ourselves over um, climate change wise, there, there are lots of solutions out there. But we need to start acting on them right now, right? And so that's the sense of urgency that I mean. So in a way, it's it's something that I pay a lot of attention to in my teaching, actually, because I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, I know it's overwhelming um, and can be really depressing. So, yeah, I just have to, I do like kind of mental health check-ins, like all the way through my class, just to make sure everyone's like feeling okay about um, sort of the stuff that they're learning. But also, you know, it's so cheesy but knowledge is power you know because mm -hmm. I mean part of the overwhelming part I think for people is that you don't know everything uh, about it so it helps a lot to be able to teach the actual science and then therefore people can understand the solutions better and also how to kind of communicate what's going on to other people better like that's something else that I focus on a lot um that's a really good point because even as you could tell with that question like you got what I was getting at, but I don't even know how to articulate what I'm feeling. Like, it's just this weird thing that like I know is in my life and especially having a child now, I'm like, I need to do something to make it better for him, but where to even start? I think this is actually probably a pretty popular topic with our runners. I mean, obviously everybody is just obsessed with the outdoors. So if you could kind of shorten it down to be like, okay, you have the opportunity to tell people in like, the shortest way possible, maybe like two or three things that they can actually do in their daily lives. Are there actionables that you can help explain to other people or pass on? Yeah. I mean, honestly, the, honestly, the biggest thing is, um, is using your vote really like, because individual mm. actions for sure, they, they make a difference in a few ways. Um, you know, like all, all big, um, kind of systemic changes kind of have to start at, at a grassroots level, right. With individuals, but not just individuals, individuals banding together. So like collective action is going to make a difference. So the more individuals there are who are making those um, just environmentally friendly um, steps in their everyday lives, that's certainly going to help. 
And I'll get to like what those can be in a sec. But the biggest one is to just make sure that we have people in power who are making the decisions that actually care about climate change and that it's the top thing or one of the top things, at least on their agenda, um, because the, the changes really have to happen at a higher level, for sure, um, like policy wise. You know, like we need to stop using fossil fuels. It's crazy that we still do that. So individually, you can make those choices. Like you can um, either cut out driving entirely if you can, like, or as much as possible, you know, like bike, walk, all that sort of good stuff. Obviously, that's not realistic for everyone. Um, if you need to drive, electric is is a much better option depending on where you live. Um, so you have to think a little bit about where your electricity comes from. Like here in BC, where you and I live, it's um, almost entirely hydroelectricity, mm -hmm. which has very few greenhouse gas emissions associated with it, like none basically. Um, so that's a great option. Um, but if you, you know, you might live somewhere where your electricity comes from a coal-fired power plant, in which case that's not helping. And and then avoiding like international travel as much as possible, which isn't really a problem right now. Um, but yeah, cutting out like one of those big transatlantic flights every year, that makes a huge difference too. Yeah, there was some stat that came out that was like how bad or how much, I think it compared how much you'd have to drive to yeah. do the same effect as one flight. And it was mind blowing. Yeah, it's a lot. So yeah, so those are those are kind of the, the, the biggest things. Um, That's actually really beneficial. Like just giving the people the power to say your vote can make a difference, I think. Is, yeah. it's just such a simple thing that really is so powerful. I think that is, that's really great advice. And I don't think I've heard anybody else say that so clearly. Yeah. I mean, also just, you know, if, if you're an activist type of person, like lobbying your local politicians and things like that for climate forward policies, um, that sort of stuff as well. And just getting involved in politics yourself. Right. Um, is great, but I know not everyone is really into doing that. So yeah, the vote's kind of the biggest point of leverage, I think, that everyone everyone has. Well, um, this is really nice for you to be on holidays, come on a podcast, and I'm just asking you to basically <laughs> continue to work for us. No, it's not. It doesn't feel like work, though. Like, that's the thing. I, I'm so lucky, I think, that I, I really, really love my job. Like, I, for me, the stuff that I teach is, it is so important, right? And it's so, like, students are super engaged with it. They care about it, too, for the most part. Um, so it honestly, it doesn't really feel like work to talk about it. Yeah, that's good. You are lucky and it does, it must feel nice to make a difference for sure. And to have people, like, I'm sure there's people that just have no idea and come out like doing a complete 180 on their stance on what they're going to do moving forward. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. It's the best. It's the best feeling. It's really rewarding. Yeah. So let's back up a bit then and get into some of your running life. I know you started running right when you were a kid. So, um, talk us a bit about, to us a bit about your history as a runner, how you started, what you competed in and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I did start, like I, I ran, ran cross country forever, like starting in kind of grade school. Um, so yeah, I competed, I was on like the high school cross country team and I loved it. So cross country is, I consider my roots, you know, like I, no pun intended. Um, I still literally like go into a forest and I can, in that like fall time, you know, when the leaves are starting to decompose and stuff, the smell of that puts me right back to being like 14 and racing cross country in high school. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I love that. Um, yeah. So I did that all through high school. Um, and then I, and start and ran a few like road races too. I had a coach who was really great, really supportive and would take me and a couple others to some like 10 K road races and things like that, which felt like a really big deal at, you know, 15. Um, so that was fun. Uh, and then I, I didn't run, um, competitively really in university. Like I didn't do varsity. I kind of wanted to take a break from all of that stuff once I went to university. So I still ran like recreationally, um, but didn't really do any competition until later on, like maybe my fourth year, I started to kind of get the itch again and ran like a half marathon and then sort of transitioned from there into into marathons and yeah ran marathons for like 10 years really liked that um I love the challenge of them still like I I still think I could do better in the marathon you know like you always have that little bit that you think oh I probably could run faster 
But uh, yeah, and then once I, I don't know, this is like a really glossed over version of my running life. But yeah, basically, I, I always dabbled in trails a little bit, like because they reminded me of cross country, and I always really liked it. Um, but it wasn't until I moved to BC, which was almost eight years ago now, that I got into trail running in a big way. And then, of course, you know what happens. It's like <laughs> just become obsessed with the trails um, and just wanted to run farther and farther. So got into ultras pretty soon afterwards. Yes, I do know what happens. I think I ran, well, actually my first trail run race also run. First trail race was my first trail run, was survival of the fittest. Thir- oh, wow. 13K. A- and I was like, oh my God, I'm never doing anything else again ever. Like, this is the, this is the best. I know. It's so great. Yeah. So I thought it was interesting in your um, bio that you said you did not run varsity at university and that's the only running regret you have. Uh, why didn't you? Yeah, it's, I, I do... I mean, you know, everything, it is what it is, but I I do kind of regret that because I think I would have really enjoyed the experience. But I think um, the reason I didn't is that that when I was in high school, I was like involved in everything. You know, I was on all the sports teams, like all the committees, all I did so much. I was really like high performing. Um, And I kind of just, I don't know, I did like an about face when I went to university. It was like, oh, freedom and I can just figure out like social aspects of my life more. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it's just that like kind of first time away from home. And um, yeah, I just didn't uh, want to do it. And the, the other thing is actually, um, I'm remembering this now, I got really actually horrible advice from our guidance counselor at my high school who said, um, so when I started university, I was in engineering. Um, and this person told me, the guidance counselor told me that I shouldn't do a varsity sport because I wouldn't be able to manage both, essentially. Like, what? Um, I know, it's such horrible advice. Um, but of course, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I'm going to be whatever. Like, it's going to take so much time to do my studies and everything. But that's, of course, complete bullshit. Like, I totally could have managed both and probably would have done better at both if I had. Well, yeah. And schools that want that you're playing varsity for whatever sport give you so many tools to make sure that you have what you need. And if anything, like it just teaches you better time management and is more impressive to an employer. Like that's so bonkers. Uh, I know. I really like when I think back to that, it was like the worst advice, but of course I'm going to believe it. I was 17, you know, Yeah. and scared, like nervous to go to university. Like it really was my first time for an extended period being away from home. And that probably was the catalyst. And then I guess, yeah, once I was there, I was just like, oh, I'm not even going to run. Like, (laughs) you know, even though I'd run my whole life, that lasted for, I don't know, not very long. And then I started jogging again, but and I played on like intramural teams, like I played soccer and stuff. I was a big soccer player for many years too. So did all of that, but um, yeah, never, never ran varsity. And I, I, I wish I had kind of, it would have been cool to have that team experience. Like I've never had the real team experience for running except for in high school. It would, but like just making a random judgment on what I know of you, which isn't that much. And also comparing to myself. So just a totally, uh, basically what I'm saying is this isn't based in any real thoughts just for, <laughs> um, I know what you mean by like having so many things going on and then you get to a place in your life where suddenly you're not under the kind of restriction of someone else. Yeah. And varsity sports are so intense and take up so much time that if you had run varsity, there's also the chance that you might've just learned to hate running because yeah. of the force. And I know that is really common. So like, it might be a blessing in disguise too. the fact that you're still running now and still loving it. Like you never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Who knows? And that's what I mean. Like it does. I'm not, I say it's kind of a regret. It's not really, it's just like the one thing, if you could ask me like what I wish I had done, it might be that, but you're right. Who knows? Like I could have really hated it. So I don't think, yeah. Anyway, who knows? I know. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I don't think so though. I could have like there's there've been periods in my life where not that I've ever hated running but that I I haven't done it and then I always come back to it you know yeah. I think it's something I always would have come back to but yeah do you consider yourself a competitive person yeah definitely it, well it's funny I said that really quickly I am like when I'm in a race I'm I'm competitive for sure like I'm racing you know um and just generally, I'm competitive by nature. Like, I think I'm that sort of type A personality a bit. But I'm not, 
like I'm actually pretty chill about my the way I train. You know, I'm I don't have a coach. Um, I'm not. I'm kind of this weird mix of like I I do it because I love it for sure and I want to run forever. But also when I'm in a when I'm prepping for a race, like in the training block leading up to a race, like I'll take it pretty seriously and want to perform well in the race. But also like be chill about it. Like I don't know. I'm kind of all over the place with that. But that, yeah, I'd that's good. I think that's everybody's goal. It's like, how can I enjoy this and still do my best and not have yeah, like I, unnecessary pressure? Maybe. Arguably, I could do better. Like if I did have a coach and, you know, really took it a lot more seriously, but then I don't, I wouldn't like it as much. So you're right. Like it's a balance. I think the, that for me, I have to find to, because my, my ultimate goal is just longevity, right? Like I really want to be able to run until I'm like 95. So <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, you'll win your age category for sure. Exactly. God, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you just gotta outlive everyone else, and then uh, <laughs> that's my goal too. That's all I got. My grandma's 103; she's almost 104, so there's a shot. Whoa, awesome! Yeah. Oh, you'll for sure be that person. <laughs> yeah, I can see it. So you moved to Squamish, and that's where you fall in love with the trails. And obviously, like in your bio, you just said my long history with Squamish 50. So explain to our listeners what that means, and um, and a bit about that race for anybody who hasn't heard about it. Oh yeah, well, so the Squamish 50, gosh, yeah. So it's the, you know, I, I moved to Squamish, yeah, like I said, almost eight years ago for a job. So I just had like a one-year position at the university here. So it was a total gamble moving, but I, I always knew I wanted to uh, live in BC. So I was like, I'm just going to take it and, you know, try and get myself a career going over there. Um Anyway, so I moved to Squamish and it's so funny, like, my, uh, you know, I knew there were trails here and I was like, oh, um, yeah, I'll probably try and find some trails to run on. And I don't know, at that time, it seemed like there maybe there were like the trail map apps and all this information, but I couldn't really find it. Like all I could find were like, you know, the little green like bike paths around town and stuff. And then I got here and realized that the apartment I had rented was um, like, 200 meters from a trailhead and I like on my third day here I moved here on a Wednesday and went running on a Saturday for the first time and was just like okay I kind of see a map like this trailhead goes to Alice Lake I'll try and find this lake so I'm running um and it's beautiful I'm like oh my god this is the most incredible running I've ever seen and then I start seeing some other people everyone's being like super friendly and nice I'm like oh this is so amazing like BC trail runners are the best um and people are like encouraging me and saying like oh you look great like way to go and I'm like okay this is like really crazy anyway it took me a while to figure out that I was in a race like um I had I had, because so I, was coming, awesome. I was coming up behind people so I didn't see that they had like bibs on um until anyway so I'm finally chatting with someone that I'm running beside I'm like oh you're in a race like what event is this and they're explaining that it's the Squamish 50 so it was the, the 50 miler um so the Squamish 50 is this uh it's a trail race um there's an there's two events the 50 milers on the Saturday and the 50k uh version is on the Sunday and then some people do both of those so the uh, the 50 miler on the Saturday and then the 50k on Sunday anyway at this time it was just the two um they didn't actually have the 50 50 but so this person's describing the 50 miler and I'm like oh, that's just insane like who would ever run that far <laughs> I can't even imagine that like I'd run marathons but like the idea of 50 miles and on the trails was nuts to me anyway so it was just such a funny experience and I like ended up running through one of the aid stations and they're offering me food <laughs> oh my god hilarious wow like you, you guys eat like candy and chips and all this amazing stuff um anyway so of course I got home uh from that run and looked up the race and I was like okay well 50 miles that's just ridiculous but um 50k sounds that's not too much longer than a marathon <laughs> I could probably do that. So I had it in my head that I would run the 50K the next year. Um, and then, you know, of course, like that one trail run turned into just exploring the trails for that whole year. Like I, Brendan, my partner and I had so much fun. Like he was, he's a runner now too, but at the time, well, he's always been a runner, but at that time he was really just into mountain biking. So we just had like one paper map, like the big 
trail map um, of Squamish, not even like an app on our phone or anything. I don't even think I had a smartphone in those days. And we would just take that map and like explore. He he would be on his bike and I would be running and we explored like all the trails. We, we knew the Squamish 50 course. So we would try and like scope out sections of it and stuff. And I quickly realized like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? Like this course is insane. It's, it's, um, for people who don't know, it's t- um, 2,300 meters of elevation gain and 2,700 meters of loss, roughly. Um, and it's really technical. Like, it's it's you're pretty much running up or down all day. There's almost no, like, flat running. Um, and, of course, like, coming from um, Quebec and Ontario, like, the technical trails were so new to me, especially, like, trying to run downhill. It was so... I was probably slower on the downhills than on the ups when I first started running here. Yeah, understand that yeah like god um anyway so trained for that trained like whatever just had fun for that year getting ready for the first squamish 50 um had like a pretty big hiccup in the training which i don't know we can get into later if you want yeah ran ran it that first year um so almost exactly a year after i moved here uh it was super hard but i loved it and then i just ran it again for I signed up for it every year between then and like two years ago, which was the last year it ran. Um, couldn't do it every year for various reasons. Like I was injured one year. Uh, one year my dad died the day before the race. Oh, no. uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, there. Are, but I, I've run it four times total. Um, improved my time every year. Um, there was always something, some reason that I felt like I wasn't running the time that I kind of knew I could run on that course, like especially as I got more and more familiar with the trails here, running on them all the time. Um, anyway, so I improved my time every year until uh, two years ago when I actually won the race, which was crazy. And you were there. It was just such a gong show yeah. of excitement. Um, and I think so everybody that- in Squamish was as excited that you won as you were. <laughs> it was so amazing like it really it was such a dream come true and it's so crazy that like that's actually the last time the race has run Isn't now it? I know yeah so I mean hopefully it goes ahead this year uh, my partner will be running it if so I will not be but I'll be crewing so yeah anyway we'll see what happens but I just really love that race I love it It it's so important to me for so many reasons well it's, um, it's so intertwined in your life even the the brief summary you just gave on it like it's such a it's such a staple in your living in Squamish was. friendships everything I think oh everything yeah exactly so what yeah. about do you remember your time the first time that you ran it and then the time that you ran to win it Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> Obviously, my first time was seven hours twelve, um, and so I, I should give a little bit of background there. So I, first of all, that's a good time. Like I was really happy. That's with that a time. very good time. Yeah. So for people who don't like, I always want to just reiterate: if you are running in California or somewhere and doing that amount of elevation, the the technicality of these trails is such a huge piece of it. Like it's not like you're just running down a hill and gaining speed. It's like yeah. sliding on your butt, trying to get over rocks and not die. Like I can't. I just urge you to come here and check it out. It's the only way you can understand. Yeah, it's true. It's cr- you just can't picture like what these downhills are like, um, or any of the trails. Yeah, they're just even the flat trails. It's like they're so yeah. you can't ever let your guard down. That's totally. Yes, that's a good way it, of you know? saying it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So that first year I was so undertrained. Like I, uh, I think my longest run leading into that race was maybe three and a half hours and maybe I had done that twice. Um, and it took me, you know, more than double that to run the race. So I was like just destroyed in the second half basically. Um, and the reason I was so undertrained is that I, uh, like four months before the race was diagnosed with breast cancer Um, and then had to start going through my, like I had a surgery, I don't know how much, maybe two months before the race or something had to recover from that. Anyway, it took a a big chunk out of my training, obviously when I kind of should have been peaking. Um, so I, I was so undertrained. So anyway, I ran seven hours, 12 minutes that first year. And then when I uh, won it, I did six hours, 15. Wow. An hour in the trails is a crazy amount of time to take off. So let's talk about that a bit. Obviously, that's the hiccup you were referring to in your training. I wasn't sure if it was the first Squamish 50 that you were going to do or the second. So it was the first, obviously. 
Can mm-hmm. you, and the only other person we've had that's been kind of young and really fit um, was Brooke. I don't know if you heard her episode, but she has had such a similar yep. thing happen. So can you talk us through what it was like finding that out, um, the diagnosis? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And Brooke and I have talked about this too. It's it's crazy. And I, we were similar age. So I was 39. Yeah. And she was like 35, I think. Yeah. It's, it's shocking. So like crazy. you never, well, you know, it, you never expect it, obviously. Um, however, <laughs> I, I knew something was wrong for like a year leading up to that. Like I knew I had found a lump in my breast and I kept going to the doctor to have, to get it checked out. Um, and I kept being told it was nothing basically, even to the point where, um, I had like an ultrasound, I think it was, no, not an ultrasound. Yeah. An ultrasound. And they were like the technician and the doctor said, Oh, we found nothing. Like there was nothing there on this ultrasound that showed up. I'm like, okay, well sort of that's good. Except for, I know that there's something there anyway. I just kind of had to keep, um, bugging them about it, uh, until finally like the, the lump just really, it changed, like it it went, it changed in its shape. Um, and it, it, started to feel like really jagged. Like I had kind of a rock under my skin and my breast. Um, and then one day I went for, so that was concerning and I had a, I made another doctor's appointment. So all of this was taking place over the course of like a year. Um, so anyway, I was waiting for my next doctor's appointment to check the lump again, um, went for a run and came back and realized there was blood coming from my nipple. And I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, like this is not, Right. Anyway, so after that, obviously everything actually happened really quickly. Like the doctor was like, yes, definitely something's wrong. Um, Sent me for the test. Like I had the, um, again, another ultrasound, I think probably a mammogram. I can't really remember. It was like six years ago now. So it's a little bit fuzzy, but anyway, got diagnosed very quickly um, straight into consult with a surgeon. Like it all happened super fast, um, at that point. So that was in like, um, May, I think, um, around six years ago. And I had found the lump the summer prior. Um, so yeah, how did I feel? It was, I mean, it was so shitty, obviously. Like I, 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 it was in a way I was like, okay, I, not a relief, but just, I knew something was wrong. Right. So just at least I was like, finally, now we can do something about it. Um, so there was that, but obviously I was really scared. Like I was really uncertain to certain about what the treatment was going to be. Um, you know, they do all these tests like to see, um, you know, they have to take like lymph nodes out of your armpits to see if it's, um, progressed to anywhere else in your body or at least into your lymphatic system where it could progress, um, uh, somewhere else. And luckily that wasn't the case for me. So it was still contained as far as they knew, but it was like the, inv- it partially the lump was, um, the invasive type of cancer. So they do like a, a biopsy of the lump itself and then can assess like what basically type of cancer it is. Um, and that also helps them determine what the treatment options are and which route they should take. So yeah, anyway, it was partly an invasive cancer. So yeah, I just, it's, it's crazy. Like you, you suddenly are thrust into all of these decision after decision about your body, um, that you you just, you're sort of paralyzed. You're like, how am I supposed to make these crazy decisions? You know? Um, yeah. So it was like scary, um, I guess, but also just, um, I just did tons of research. Like, you know, I, I just, again, empowered myself with the knowledge as much as I could. Um, and so at least could make informed decisions about the treatment, which helped a little bit. Um, yeah. I wonder Like, and you may not remember, but I know I've had times before where I've gone to the doctor and had an idea, obviously at a much smaller scale, of something that I think is wrong. And, you know, we're athletes, we're pretty in touch with our body and kind of getting told that nothing's wrong. And this like almost authoritative fear factor of like, don't question us and trying to like advocate for your own health. But at the same time, they're like, no, no, there's nothing. This looks normal. You're fine. Or you're Mm -hmm. just, you're not sleeping enough. Um, was there any part of you that like felt that pressure from them that like what they were saying was wrong? And did you lose trust then in the medical system at all when you had to make these decisions? No, I don't think so. It didn't feel, it's a really good question. Um, 
I don't think I felt like that. I, it was a bit frustrating for sure because the thing is I felt fine, right? Like it, it, it was literally just a, not just, but it was, it was a lump. Like I, it wasn't extra tired. I wasn't, nothing had changed with my eating habits, you know, like there was nothing else that, that I remember anyway, that seemed off. Um, so I was like, I, I guess they know what they're talking about. And that, you know, they kept the, the doctors kept saying like, Oh, it's just like normal breast change. Like that happens as you get older and breasts are lumpy anyway. And you know, it's like fibrocystic tissue changes and things like that. And like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. And it wasn't, I didn't, I don't think I was really, I wasn't worried about it um, until it started to change in its shape. And then I was like, there's clear, like, that's the number one thing <laughs> you're, you're supposed to look for, you know? Um, so yeah, the, the one thing in retrospect though, that makes me really question what the hell was going on is that that ultrasound that I had, um, when they said it showed up, nothing, like, I don't understand how, um, they couldn't see something like, you know, you could feel it physically and know that something was there. So that, that part was a bit weird, but yeah. Did you ever ask them or did they just say, like you said, it's just a normal thing that you're feeling? Yeah, I don't think I ever asked them. I think I was too, like, just in survival mode to even think about that at the time. That's why I said, like, in retrospect, I think that right. at the it's it really is survival mode, like, literally. But also, you're just, it's like a triage system in your brain of, like, okay, I just have to make this decision. And it's like, you can't even, I can't remember it. It's, it, it's actually a little bit, I think I've blocked it out a little bit. Um but just how stressful that time was, like you're constantly in and out of um, doctor's appointments and consultations. And it's like, you know, I had a notebook of like all my appointments and it's just like every week, this is what you're doing. And it's so draining, you know? Um, so yeah, you're just in, it's total survival mode. You're just like moving forward and like, okay, next decision, next decision, next thing you have to get over next thing you have to get through. So you just like kind of shut down um, so yeah, I didn't really have time to think about anything else really. And like I, you say at the beginning, you weren't tired, you weren't feeling different. What about when it was noticeably changing and you saw blood? Like, were you starting to feel physically different at that point? No, I don't think so. Honestly, like wow. I was running, I think I ran like a half marathon that day or something. That's so crazy. Um, it's again, like, you know, when you're, and I was training too, right? Like I was yeah. starting to ramp up my training for the Squamish 50. So, um, you know, you're like, even if I was feeling a bit more tired, I would have probably talked it up to like, well, I'm running longer than I ever have before, you know? Um, so that's hard to say. I don't think so though. I think I felt fine. And so um, was the decision then if you were to just have it completely removed and what kind of treatment you were going after? Yeah. So luckily for me, um, chemo was never really a, a, an op, not that it wasn't an option. It just didn't make sense. Like there, there's a test that they can do on the tumor to see, basically it's like a cost benefit analysis of chemotherapy because the side effects obviously are so, um, brutal from that. And the, just the type of cancer that I had, that the side effects, um, the benefits of chemo would not have outweighed the negative side effects. So that was off the table right away, which I was very thankful for. And then it was um, a few decisions. So the the first thing, um, the first line of treatment was just a, a like a lumpectomy, a partial mastectomy, where they just try to excise the tumor. And so that I think I had that in like June of that year. Um, and then that was like a six week recovery after that. And in the meantime, they they send the whole tumor to the lab and assess like whatever, do the full biopsy on it to get all the information. Um, and then that, that result came back, um, that they, they were pretty sure they got all the tumor, but what they also want to get is enough margins of healthy breast tissue around it to just be sure that they have all of the cancer removed. And those margins were deemed like not big enough. And this is like on the order of like millimeters that they're talking, right? So they're like, we didn't get enough healthy tissue margin. Um, so we need to do another surgery. And mind you, this is after like a six week recovery already. Right. <laughs> and so they gave me then the option of, um, we can do another, there were three options, basically another partial mastectomy with radiation therapy or a full mastectomy of that breast, like the affected breast, or also like a, a 
prophylactic mastectomy of the other side too, just as like kind of an insurance policy because it was the invasive type of cancer. So it could, you know, could one day spread anyway. So again, like impossible decision, right? But I just decided to, I didn't, I had a consult with a radiation oncologist and she was really wonderful. So all of my practitioners were really, really great. They were all women. They were all young, youngish, you know, but the radiation oncologist in particular, she was really frank with me. She was like, honestly, um, there's not enough like long-term um, information about the effects of uh, radiation when you do it so young. Um, Cause again, I was 39 She's like, if you were like 80 years old, I would say, sure, get another partial um, and get the radiation. But she's like, uh, if if I were you, I wouldn't undergo radiation therapy if you can avoid it. So for me, that was like a huge testimonial, obviously. So I said, OK, um, so that's off the table. So it's either, you know, one side or both mastectomy. And I just decided to do both because I, I thought I don't want to be living in fear for the rest of my life that it's going to come back in the other breast, you know? Um, so I was like, yeah, just, just take them both. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I mean, I have no idea. I'm not able to say, I think that's the decision I would make, but it does seem like, yeah, having that fear and you just want to be over with it. Um, yeah. What about you say you're close with your parents? Were they in Quebec during this? Yeah. So, um, yeah, they were, and I mean, my mom offered to come out so many times, yeah. but it was like, I had Brendan here. He's such a huge support and it was fine. And she, yeah, it just didn't make sense for her to fly out. But I, when I was first diagnosed, I, I went out there, um, just to, um, stay with them for a couple of weeks. So that was good. And yeah, of course they were very supportive and worried, but also, I don't know, they, yeah, they were probably a lot more worried than they let on to me. Um, but to me, it just seemed like they were they were just there as always, like when I um, wanted to talk about stuff. Yeah, I guess just a support network is the most. But yeah. I of, often find like once you hit 30 that you also sort of worry about putting your parents under stress mm -hmm. too. So it's almost like a double stressor to try to keep them from worrying and try to keep yourself like maybe that's a woman thing too, is that you're also trying to protect everybody else from being hurt by your own. Oh, totally. Things, yeah. right? Like it's crazy how yeah. we do that. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think, you know, like I... I, it's crazy, like that whole year where, because it, it was basically a year of like, between the diagnosis and like, all the treatments and stuff, um, or surgeries. I don't know, I alternated among so many different like, emotions for that year. It was mostly though, I think just defiance. It was like, I'm just gonna get through this, you know, like, um, and that's part of the reason I still ran the Squamish 50 that first year. I was like, I, there's no way I'm letting even though I was so undertrained, like I really had no business running that race uh, with the level of training that I had. But I was like, screw this. Like, I'm not letting this thing take that away from me, you know? Um, so th that's such a huge motivator too. Like we're so, again, lucky isn't the right word, but as runners, we have that mindset, right? That uh, we can do hard things, right? And that like a 50K run in the trails after going through breast cancer isn't that hard of a thing relatively, you know? And well, well it is like give yourself credit but it, no yeah I don't mean it is a hard thing but it's a hard <laughs> thing that you're choosing to do yes it's, it's empowering really right yeah exactly um so and yeah so in a way it gave me like really good motivation for for doing the race and how did yeah. you feel doing the race like was there any part of you that worried at all like is this too much on my body or you just felt like you were having fun and gonna be smart no. yeah oh yeah no it just was I mean I was dying like I just <laughs> my legs were protesting so like I think I had so many like my calves and quad everything was seizing up basically honestly in the whole last half of the race like it was it was pretty dire but um yeah I just was like just keep just keep moving forward you know like whatever I got through it um it, that's the thing it's all mindset right like totally it, it, if you go to the, the bad place in your head, it's going to be a nightmare. But it, I actually enjoyed the whole thing, even though my legs were rebelling. Um, yeah. It sounds like your mindset just through this whole thing was like the, the just what you need to get through it, I guess, and to come out like stronger and then still become a better runner and not live in fear. I feel yeah. like this is probably a situation that a lot of women face and maybe are just kind of scared and don't talk about it so I really appreciate 
um, you being so public about your story on my podcast and on others, do you have any advice that you would give if someone was kind of just finding this out and in that place of fear on how to make decisions and like maybe one or two things that, that can just kind of help get through each day? Yeah. So, I mean, for sure information, again, like, I feel like this is a running theme with me and it's probably because of my, my job, but, um, the more informed you can be, the better decisions you can make. Right. And like I said, it, it honestly gives you back power because the way I, I remember hearing cancer described, um, to me as a, as the cancer train. And it's so true. It's just like this thing that takes you, it, it goes barreling ahead and you're just trying to keep up right with all of these decisions. It's the decisions. They're so paralyzing if you don't have the information. Um, so yeah, just gather the information, um, make sure all of your practitioners are working together, like ask them all the questions you can think of, like write down your questions beforehand before your appointments. Cause you won't think of them when you're there, you know, um, your mind kind of goes blank. So yeah, ask a bunch of questions, do the research, but don't like go crazy on Google with like, you know, you're going to for sure convince yourself that you're dying if you do that. But, you know, just do the proper research, um, figure out what treatment option works the best for you and makes the most sense for your life. So that's the number one for sure for me. Um, and then otherwise, like for getting through day to day, just um, you you just need support. You need um two things. You need support of some kind. So obviously your, your family and your friends network. But the other thing I'd really recommend is um, joining some kind of group of people who have been through the same thing, right? Or are going through the same thing. So in my case, I joined um, breastcancer.org has a really good online forum um, for everything, like every question you could possibly have or want to talk about regarding breast cancer. Um, and they have these groups. So I was in... Um, it was called October, October surgery sisters. I still remember the forum. Um, so everyone who was undergoing some kind of breast cancer surgery in October of that month, we were all in this forum together. And so I went on that like all the time and I didn't actually post very much, but I just read what other people were going through. And that really helped just to see like, you know, there was humor in there and there was, um, fear. And there were some people who, God, they were going through like their third or fourth surgery and you know anyway they were they were like the veterans of breast cancer in there that were giving advice and just the little pieces of things that they understood that other people wouldn't that was so so helpful to me um things like after your mastectomy surgery you're like a tyrannosaurus rex like you can't move your arms anywhere it's so awkward you know because your pec muscles have been cut through like that the, that's the kind of thing you just don't think about anyway so um that was very helpful um, and then of course, for me, like, um, having running, so whatever it is for people, and I've seen most people listening to your podcast are also runners. So just like run what you can, like I had to the, honestly, honestly, the hardest part for me, I think the whole time was having to take so much time off of running because it's my primary coping mechanism. Right. So as soon as you can get back to the running, um, even like, you know, my first like little 20 minute run after that big surgery was just that's when the healing process really started for me, I feel. Um, yeah. So those would be my tips, I think. Those are really good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Especially, yeah, like you can have your support system, but other people who have been through it is something that yeah. is so necessary. Totally. Yeah. Brooke and I talked about that. Like we didn't actually know each other um, when we were both diagnosed. Like we kind of got to know each other afterwards and we were like, man, I wish we had known each other. Totally. Right. <laughs> so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, I had two questions and I, my brain didn't know which one it wanted to go to. I want to get a bit into um, your hiking in Nepal. Um, and you, you said Brendan was a runner. I thought that he wasn't. But you guys have obviously been through so much together. Um, and yeah. you want to go and explore and he wants to go and relax. So I did think that was super interesting in your bio. It's a bit of a jump in topic, but we often have people ask these questions like, like you're saying how much running means to you and that you're training for a 50K even through breast cancer. Like, obviously this is a huge part of your life time-wise. So I do want to hear about how you guys negotiate your trips. I think that's super fun. Oh, it's hilarious. So yeah, so I should say, yeah, Brendan's an amazing athlete. Like he's like 
he's a super, super fast trail runner and really good mountain biker as well. Um, but yeah, our approaches to, to I, I think our motivation and reason for doing um, the sports that we do is very different. Like he, so if you asked him if he's competitive, it's like 100% it's about competition. Like he, whether it's with himself or other people, it doesn't matter. Like when he has a goal, <laughs> he is laser focused and he trains toward it and his like, you know, so for me, if we both ran a 50k race afterwards, you know, people were like, oh, did you have fun? I'd be like, yeah, it was so much fun. And he'd be like, no, it was hell. <laughs> <laughs> because he's like almost redlining like he's anyway. So that that's the difference in our sort of training mentality. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like when he's on, he's really on. But then when he's off, he's really off. So, yeah, our vacation planning is is so funny like we basically have to like you said negotiate like I want to do all the adventurous stuff and he does too like he enjoys it too but you know if you asked us after like that Nepal trip for example so we um we did uh like a seven day trek uh, around the Langtang Valley and it was incredible super hard obviously like elevation sickness and all that stuff um but then after that we did um I don't know, like half a week or something um, at like a nicer hotel in uh, Kathmandu and just hung around and had like good food and all that sort of thing. And so if you ask us afterward, like what our favorite part of the trip was, I'm of course going to say like the brutal seven day trek. And he's like, oh, the hotel in Kathmandu. (laughs) (laughs) Even though it's so funny. It's like every time. So yeah, we end up planning these, um, all our vacations are like this and it's so perfect because he really pushes for like the relaxation time and I really push for the adventure time and we both like them both it's just that you know if it if it was left up to me it would all be adventure probably and if it was left up to him it would all be relaxation so it's like the perfect blend we end up having the perfect vacations because it's like that ideal mix you know and we always do of course the big adventure thing before the relaxation so then you totally you know, you get to actually enjoy it. So yeah, it's funny. It's good. We balance each other out really well in that way. Yeah, and it's good. You need you need some like similarities and some opposites for sure to make it good. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also he loves the planning. Like and I I hate planning things. Um really? So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I am super surprised because I assumed like just how dialed in you had that route for Tori's birthday and oh, being a professor yeah. and everything. I thought you'd be like totally into all the planning. I think maybe that's why I'm not though. So you're right. My favorite thing is route planning. Like, (laughs) tell me you want to run like 25 K with a thousand meters of elevation and I am on it. Like I love doing that stuff so much, but yeah, planning for holidays. Like I, I talk about being paralyzed with decisions. I like, (laughs) it's like, Oh, it's overwhelming. No, I can't. But yeah. And I, I think, I think you nailed it. Honestly, it's because I'm a prof, although Brendan is too. Is <laughs> so he, what does he what teach? Excuses. But um, yeah, I just don't like doing that at all. And he absolutely love it, loves it. Like he has like spreadsheets of our trips for like the next five years kind of thing planned out. So it's, it's perfect. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. And what, um, obviously you probably had to delay some adventures. What is the next big adventure you guys want to do together? Oh, good question. Yeah. So we're, we're always torn on what the actual next one will be, but, um, well, so I really want to run CCC obviously. Um, so what, one of the UTMB races, the hundred K one, um, and we also really want to go to Italy for, uh, a vacation. Um, so we'll probably merge those two things in the next couple of years, hopefully. Um, have you been to Italy? What's that? Have you been to Italy? I've been once. Yeah. But I, I, it was, it was a very short trip. Like I was living in Ireland at the time. So it was just kind of a quick, like weekend kind of trip. It was ridiculous. So yeah, we want to go for like a couple months kind of thing and actually live there. Like one of the anyways. Yeah. But I, of course I'm like, well, if we're there, <laughs> that's when I want to do CCC. Totally. So, that, it's yeah. funny because like my husband and I did our, we did a 90 K in the Swiss Alps for our honeymoon. Oh, nice. Which is like my thing. And yeah. then he like off the couch it, which I mean, as much as you possibly can off the couches with Alps. Yeah. It was 90K with just over 6,000 meters of elevation. So very similar to the stuff you get out here. Yeah. And then we were going to go to Italy for a relaxing recovery bike ride um, where you kind of travel around or seven days of biking anywhere from like 50 to 80K. But 
the way they sound, it it sounded like it would be pretty easy. These were like super old, shitty, heavy bikes where <laughs> the chains kept falling off and the elevation gain was fucking bananas. So we were like <laughs> in the heat, pouring sweat, pushing our bikes and our panniers up these things. And he was just like, I am going to kill you. And I was like, yeah, honeymoon relaxation <laughs> nailed it. That's awesome. Yeah, it was yeah, amazing. Yeah, sounds perfect to me, but yeah. <laughs> Um, and last question before I ask you my staple last question, what about from a, a running race standpoint, what is your next big goal other than just longevity as far as races and is Squamish 50 as appealing now I have two questions now that you've already won it? Huh. Um, so my next goal, so the other race that I have a long and storied history with is, is Wham, which is the Whistler Alpine Meadows race. Um, so just North of Squamish, um, so that's my my goal for a long time has been the 100k version of that race which is pretty much exactly the same stats as ccc which is um great like i i see it as like kind of a practice race for that and and just an amazing race in its own right obviously um so tons of elevation um also like five or six thousand meters kind of thing um really technical mountain race um, so anyway, it's that's I've been signed up for that for a few years. Obviously, last year it got canceled. Um, the year before I it was the year I won Squamish and I just it's only a month after that race and I just mentally wasn't in it. So didn't end up. I actually dropped out of the race. Uh, anyway, I, I've been wanting to do this race for a long time. And so I'm, I'm signed up for this year. Um, it's been reduced to a 90K version. Um, so it sounds exactly like your Swiss Alps run actually yeah i'm trying to get into it too if they open up registration so i'll see you yeah there. so so i'm in it because i have my registration from last year um so yeah i i really hope that goes ahead it's in late september so there's a um, chance I, I think yeah i think so too and so i'm i'm training for that and you know even if it doesn't i'll whatever i'll have that summer fitness to do some something with <laughs> just have fun in the summer if nothing else um, yeah, so that's my only race on the calendar right now. Um, and then other question, Squamish. So yeah, it's, uh, so it's funny that, that I, you asked me about my time that I ran and it was six hours 15. And I always thought that was like the fastest I could run on that course. That was like my, my perfect time was 615. Um, but then I ran it last year and last year's course was actually, or sorry, two years ago now that course um, was actually a kilometer longer than it had been in the past um, because they had to change the start line. Oh, so yeah. I was like, <laughs> so I actually ran that time on a race course that was a, a K longer. So I'm like, maybe I could go faster. So there's always a little bit of, hmm, maybe. Um, but for now, I, it doesn't have the same appeal. No, like I, I'm pretty happy with that um, outcome and just leaving it for a bit. I'll probably do the 50 miler one day um I've never run that route uh but yeah it's still I still love the race and I'm always there regardless like I always volunteer um on the day that I'm not racing and it's just such a fun weekend but in terms of actually racing it it might be a while before I do it again I think yeah yeah I think that's fair you seem to have such a good like balance on training long-term goals and then picking like races that have a big appeal and I think that's kind of something that newer trail runners can really learn a lot from because I think it's like oh okay well if I'm going to be a trail runner I better race like six races this summer and then run a 100 miler or I'm not a real trail runner runner yeah. you know like it's so easy to get caught up so I think there's a lot of good advice yeah. just in the the background of those goals yeah yeah I'm more of a slow burn kind of <laughs> like yeah I, I really like that though like I for me I really wanted to figure out the 50k distance before like I ran 100k like a I don't know a bunch of years ago 2016 or something um just kind of to see if I could do it um but yeah otherwise I really like just focusing on the 50k to to be able to race it because you know when you start it's like you're just running to survive these things right like um so yeah I feel like finally I'm at a place where I can race 50ks and now now I'm like okay it's time to move up in distance a bit um yeah yeah I think that yeah, that's such a good like just to be able to like you said race the 50k instead of being like okay I finished that now I can go on to the longer but anyways I mean and also to each your own whatever makes you happy totally yeah exactly and I should say like I know whatever everyone's motivation is is 
is awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I will have two last questions. A, what are you eating for breakfast right now? And B, after your Squamish 50K, what is the meal that you are craving most? Ah, Tori's going to laugh at me when she hears this. She knows exactly what I eat for breakfast every morning, which is <laughs> right now I'm having a bagel with almond butter and coffee. So that's pretty much my every morning breakfast. Delicious. Yes. Um, and after Squamish 50, um, well, pizza for sure. Like I always crave pizza. Oh, interesting. Nice and simple. Yeah. Pizza and beer. Yeah. There's something about a fresh beer after that is fresh beer. That's not, you know what I mean? Cold beer. Stale beer. Mm, (laughs) Just a real old keg. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. There's so much fun. I think feel like we could have talked forever. Um, If our listeners want to find more of you, do you have an Instagram, a blog, anything that's public for people or if they want to reach out to you? Um, Yeah, sure. I have Instagram. So I'm Tara.Trails on Instagram. I also have a blog, but it's kind of a convoluted URL. So you can find that through my Instagram if anyone really wants to read about my trail adventures. Okay, awesome. Do you keep up with that blog? Uh, Well, usually I just write race reports on it. So (laughs) the last one is actually, I think my last post is from Squamish 52 years ago. So Oh, but that might be fun to read. I'll link to that in the show notes so you guys can check it out there. Okay, fun. All right, well, thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your holidays. Thank you so much. And yeah, hopefully I see you again soon. Yes, that would be awesome.